What happens when a Muslim decides to give up their own faith and follow Christ? Coming up, it's the spiritual journey of a Muslim girl from the Middle East who comes to know Jesus. You'll hear her share her testimony with all its twists and turns. This is a story you've got to hear. Plus, we'll help you understand what's behind this week's headlines in the Middle East and more. Welcome to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, always glad to be connecting with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, I bet you've got further thoughts on your trip as you've just come back from Israel. Now you've had some time to process. Uh, what kind of thoughts come to mind? Well, you know, I start this way. Just being back in Israel with a group is is a highlight. That was two years from the time we were there last. This trip happened to be special since it was the church where I grew up in Pennsylvania. Hmm. And the pastor's a dear friend. He happens to be my brother-in-law. So uh, it was fun being with him. And obviously many on the trip were from Pennsylvania. But we also had participants from Arizona and from Texas and Canada and Costa Rica and England. Hmm. So in one sense, it was an international trip. And getting to know all those people was uh, was real fun. Now, in terms of sites, it, it's hard to pick a favorite on this trip, John. But uh, you know me in the Judean wilderness. I loved it. In fact, if people went to our Facebook page, I posted a, a little video of the Judean wilderness. And we overlooked the St. George's Monastery in the Wadi Kilt. It was fun being back there. Crazy as this is, the whole country wasn't crowded. But we had three buses show up at the same time in the Judean wilderness. So that was just nutty. You know, but it was fun to see some of the changes that had been taking place there. Well, I have to ask, did your group uh, experience any hiccups, any glitches along the way? Uh, we did have our share of hiccups. I compare it to uh, my dad had a cousin who would come and visit us from New York City, and he kept a car in the garage uh, near our house. And uh, every time he came up six months, you know, he'd try and start the car up and the battery would be dead and then it would belch smoke and then it would eventually get running uh, right. And uh, that's what Israel's going through right now. They, they don't have the processes down as smoothly as they used to be, but that was two years ago and they have had a lot of changeover in personnel. Uh, but having said that, uh, it still was okay. We did, you know, the people who were here were flexible and they were able to change with it. And it was amazing we were the largest tour group that we saw in Israel, 34 people. Hmm. And everyone was coming up and just uh, thanking us for being there. So that made the group feel good. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who's been to Israel well over 100 times, just back and sharing a few thoughts uh, about that trip. I'm John Geiger, fascinated and looking forward to uh, joining Charlie and Kathy soon in Israel. Let me ask you, though, Charlie, on your way home, uh, you stopped off in London for a few days, and apparently Israel was in the news there as well. The Labour Party in the UK has struggled in the past with anti-Semitism, and they appear to be struggling once again. So what exactly is happening within that party, and did you observe uh, specifically any anti-Semitic activity while you were there in London? Yeah, thankfully, we didn't run into any of the demonstrations or the marches, uh, probably because we didn't go around the parliament area. But the UK is experiencing many of the problems uh, that we're facing in our country. Uh, the very progressive wing of the Labour Party, which is their left-leaning party in England, uh, has been taken over by the anti-Semitic and anti-Israel forces. Now, Labour's previous leader, Jeremy Corbyn, faced multiple accusations of anti-Semitism over his hostility toward Israel and his support for anti-Israel terror groups. He was finally forced out as party leader back in 2020 and replaced by Keir Starmer. Uh, Starmer's an atheist, but his wife is Jewish, and they're raising their children in the Jewish faith. And people thought, oh, that's good. Hopefully they're turning a corner. 
Uh, it seemed to bode well for relations between the Labor Party and Israel, as did their party's approval of a new review process for anti-Semitism. Now, complaints about anti-Semitism are reviewed by an independent committee. Now, unfortunately, though, at the party's annual conference just in late September, anti-Semitism again raised its ugly head. Delegates passed a resolution condemning Israel and defining it as an apartheid state. Uh, the resolution also called on the UK to impose sanctions against Israel. Hmm. Thankfully, the Labour Party isn't the party in power right now, so there's no immediate threat to Israel from this resolution. And not everybody in the Labour Party supported that move, but there was enough support for it to pass. And it's a reminder that there are politicians, both in the UK and in our country, who actively oppose Israel and who want to make Israel an enemy rather than an ally. And John, that concerns me. You know, from a theological perspective, Israel doesn't need the UK or the US. Rather, we need Israel. And I say that because of Genesis 12:3 and a verse that's still true. God says he'll bless those who bless Israel and he'll curse those who curse Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that everything Israel does is right, mm -hmm. but it does mean Israel holds a special place in God's plan and program for this planet and that we need to support their right to exist as a nation. Well, Charlie, nobody has ever accused Israel of being plain vanilla, but that might just be the case in the future, thanks to an Israeli startup company named Vanilla Vita. What's the latest on this agricultural innovation from Amazing Israel? Yeah, yeah people know about vanilla extract and vanilla ice cream, but few know much about the vanilla bean itself. Uh, the bean, or, or the pod, is from an orchid, and it only grows in Mexico, Madagascar, Tahiti, Uganda, and Indonesia. That is, until now. Israeli startup Vanilla Vita has set out to turn the vanilla industry on its head. Uh, vanilla is the world's most popular scent and taste, but natural vanilla, rather than the artificial product, only grows in tropical environments. It's very labor-intensive and requires a long four- to six-month drying process. Uh, that's why natural vanilla only accounts for about 6% of the world's consumption. A vanilla Vita has developed a process that can produce five times the vanilla per square foot of space hmm. with 80% more aroma and flavor. They can grow it in 20% less time, and they've cut down the curing process by 85%. In short, they brought a very high-tech approach to what's been a very low-tech and labor-intensive product. Their goal is to become the major producer of premium-quality vanilla. They've worked to improve flavor profiles and boost production while also creating a more stable supply chain. And they've established joint ventures with established Israeli farmers to cultivate and cure the product using their proprietary methods. Uh, their ultimate goal is to drive down the cost of natural vanilla to the point where they can convert 25%, uh, they hope, of the current synthetic vanilla market, uh, which most people don't know that synthetic vanilla is used producing petrochemicals. And they want to convert 25% to people using natural vanilla. Now imagine vanilla ice cream made with all natural vanilla from beans grown in Israel. Hmm. That sounds like a sweet deal, doesn't it, John? I think so. A treat at that. Well, Charlie, for the past two weeks, we have enjoyed some of your reflections on your recent trip to Israel. I I'm guessing there are people listening who say, okay, all right, you know, coronavirus seems to be settling back just a bit. Tourism is opening up. You know, our church, our small group, our, our friends have wanted to go to Israel for some time. And they don't even know where to begin. What's a first step? How, how big does your group have to be? What are some considerations that maybe people don't think about uh, in launching this idea of a trip to Israel? 
Well, right now, it's nice. Israel's trying to keep groups relatively small. So a group of 30 is a large group. A group of 25 is about average right now. As things open up, they're going to expect to have a little bit larger groups. But if a church or a Bible study or some group says, we'd like to go, the best thing to do is find a tour operator here in the United States that specializes in trips to Israel. Uh, give them a call and talk through the specifics. Tours are actually being set up about a year to a year and a half in advance. Uh, it takes sometimes that long to plan everything and get it together. What people need to remember most of all is that between now and the time of the trip, uh, the process in Israel will change. Coronavirus will go up and down. Uh, once people commit, they just need to stay the course and uh, focus on it. Our group actually was postponed two different times before mm-hmm. they finally went. Yeah. But when they went, it made all the difference. Charlie, you have led, you know, maybe upwards of 100 tours over to Israel. What are typical mistakes that you have seen people make that could easily be avoided? I, I suspect starting early and staying on top of things uh, might be one problem that, that some folks have. Absolutely. They, uh, I think they tend to think in terms of, we'll set up a trip, and then a month beforehand, we'll, we'll start looking at the details. In reality, uh, you need to set the trip up and then uh, plot out, and, and the tour operator will help you with this, but plot out, what do I do nine months, six months, five months, three months ahead of time to make sure our group is fully prepared, uh, not only emotionally and spiritually, but also physically for that trip. You talk about spiritual preparation. What should somebody be reading, perhaps, as they think about a, a trip to the Holy Land? Well, I'm prejudiced, but Greg Hatterberg and I developed the Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land from Moody Publishers, and we actually provide a step-by-step way for people to prepare themselves physically, but also spiritually, and especially spiritually for that trip. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of details, and uh, if you'd like further information, I'm sure Charlie would be glad to talk with you anytime via email. You can connect with us with your Bible question as well, and that's uh, coming up in a segment here later on in the broadcast. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. And have you tried our podcast yet? It's a great way to listen and enjoy the program for yourself at your own convenience and also share us with a friend. You know, not everybody lives near a radio station that carries the broadcast, so the podcast is a great solution. Coming up on The Land and the Book, Nadine's story, a former Muslim, comes to know Christ, right here. What happens when a Muslim decides to give up their own faith and follow Christ? What's that journey like? With so many laws threatening death for those who share Christ, how is it even possible for a Muslim to hear about Jesus? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and you're about to hear Nadine's story. It's the spiritual journey of a Muslim girl from the Middle East who comes to know Jesus. But there are a lot of twists and turns along the way, and We're going to let you hear Nadine speak for herself, her own testimony in her own words. But first, let's get some background on her as we connect with Tom and Joanne Doyle of Uncharted Ministries. They are both favorite guests on the land and the book. They reach out to peoples of the Middle East and around the world. And it's good to have you guys back, Tom, Joanne. Oh, great to be with you, John. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let me ask you guys. What kind of background can you give us on Nadine, the young lady that we're about to meet? Ladies first, Joanne, what kind of background? Mm, 
Well, Nadine is a young woman that's beautiful on the outside, beautiful on the inside. But we all have a story, don't we, John? And, mm. and Nadine's story is unique. She was born in the Middle East, but then, you know, pretty much raised here in the States. So she's kind of got a, a cross-cultural viewpoint of life. And Nadine, though, raised Muslim, gave her life to Jesus. Tom, how did this story that we're about to hear become actually a video that is now available as part of a collection of stories posted online? Well, you know what? We launched I Found the Truth a couple of years ago, and it's Muslims giving their stories about how they came to faith in Jesus. And this one is typical of one that moves, a Muslim that moves to America. They feel conflicted, and so did Nadine. She was saying the call to prayer but yet she was reciting the Our Father prayer, too. She, she wanted something from Christianity, but wasn't sure how to make that break from Islam. We're talking with Tom and Joanne Doyle of Uncharted Ministries. We're going to connect with them again after we hear this amazing testimony from Nadine. Without further ado, let's listen. My name is Nadine, and this is how I found the truth. My mom is American. My dad is Middle Eastern. I grew up the youngest of four kids. Growing up in Jordan, I remember in school, you know, our teachers would have us write verses from the Quran. I just remember writing it over and over again and not really like knowing what I was supposed to be feeling because I felt nothing. And there was a curiosity there. There were questions, but the questions weren't being answered. Forgiveness wasn't around the house. I mean, especially with my parents, you know, they would get in arguments and, and fight and hold those grudges against each other that next day. And as kids, you know, you can sense it. You pick up on those things and, and you see, okay, well, they're not forgiving each other. Like, why do I have to forgive anyone that does anything to me? With my dad, you know, his alcoholism, it was hard to see him at night when he would get so drunk, when he would just stumble, when he would mumble his words. And when he wasn't drinking, our relationship was fine. It was great. I was his little baby. He took care of me. But then when he started drinking, things just started changing. Because the next day he was so normal and back to normal and loving me, I never felt like I had to completely forgive him, but there was an anger that I held, an anger that I didn't even know that was there. And so my mom had convinced my dad for us kids to move to America with my mom. Once we moved to America, that's when I started hearing about Jesus just sparked curiosity, you know, who is Jesus and why are all these kids talking about him? And I had made a friend and she would take me to church. The experience that I had with Allah seemed so just like closed off and so scary. And then when I went to church, you know, I was curious as to why these people were so happy and, and seemed so loving and so excited. At one point, I learned the Lord's Prayer started to pray that every single night along with the Muslim prayer. So I was praying two different prayers to two different gods. I just was confused. I didn't know what was going on, but I was very curious about Jesus. And, um, you know, in all those years, I was just trying to find out what was real, what was true. And, you know, throughout my experience in elementary school and middle school and high school, I had friends who would start talking about Jesus to me. And um, I... I would shut it down right away. You know, I was curious, but then whenever they would start talking about Jesus, I just felt like I was, I just felt like my dad would not be proud of me. 
what kind of I was stuck in my mind was my dad saying, you're Muslim, you are, that's just who you are. So I look back now and I see all those times that God was trying to get in and I just shut it down right away. And with my mom, when we had moved to America, she moved with us four kids, just her as a single parent. And my dad stayed in Jordan. She all of a sudden had a sense of freedom that she hadn't had while living in a Muslim country. And so, you know, there would be days where she wouldn't, you know, be at the house. My siblings and I just kind of had to, you know, fend for ourselves and, you know, with my mama. And my siblings took care of me. I held a lot of resentment because I didn't know why she was leaving us. I just felt such shame. Why would she leave me? Why? What did I do? You know, as a kid, what did I do? Like, I'll change. I'll do whatever I can to stay home. And, you know, fast forward to college. Freshman year, I met a boy. You know, we just hung out for a couple weeks. And then he invited me to go to church. And I remember the first service just so clearly, I can see it. People are standing, they're worshiping, and it's just, just so uncomfortable. But I remember like sitting down and just my, my throat just started closing. And I was trying to hold back tear. I was trying to, trying to hold back every emotion that I could. But Jesus was just drawing it all out. The pastor was talking about forgiveness and, and it was in such a positive light. It was just in a way that I had never heard forgiveness talked about before. There were so many past traumas and pains that I had been hanging on to. What really, really hit me was forgiveness with my mom. Jesus can forgive our sins and I can forgive her. And after that, our our relationship did start to heal. It started to mend. My sister had done um, a Bible study with her, her now husband's grandma. So I reached out to her and I asked if she would do Bible studies with me, just one-on-one. She was so incredibly patient with me. I mean, with everything, with every question that I had, you know, no question was dumb. No question was um, just like, why would you ask that? It's, she explained every single question. During those Bible studies, I was, you know, I was learning about Jesus. I was learning, you know, all the love that he had for us. But I didn't, I wasn't necessarily, I guess, taking it and using it in my life. And I was still confused. I was still saying my two separate prayers, a Muslim prayer prayer and the Lord's Prayer. All through my life, (laughs) there had seemed to be a common theme of um, trying to find fulfillment in others. And I didn't have fulfillment in Jesus. And so I was seeking it in others. I was seeking it in, you know, anything. My boyfriend who I'd been with, the one that took me to church, you know, we had been talking and it was just an emotional talk. And... I just remember saying, I was like, I just, I feel like I'm not getting enough. I'm just not getting enough from you. I don't have enough. I need more. I need more. And he just looked up at me and he said, you know, I I can't fill that hole for you. And I just remember feeling so confused, you know. I, I didn't know why. And I remember leaving his house and I walked home and I was crying. I went to my room. I slammed the door. I jumped on my bed and I grabbed my Bible. I just opened it up and I just started reading. And during that time is when I, it, it hit me, you know, it hit me that I was trying to find fulfillment in him. And he wasn't going to give me that fulfillment. And he knew that. And I was just starting to learn that. And 
as harsh as that moment might have been, as emotional, as hurtful as it felt, I'm so glad it, it happened. I'm so glad he said that. I needed that. I needed someone to say that to me. And, you know, that was the moment that I surrendered my life to Christ. Boy, what a journey Nadine has been on. And, of course, we had to shorten it just a bit. You can hear the entire thing online when you head. Where do you go, Tom, to hear these stories about I Found the Truth? Yeah, ifoundthetruth.com. Real simple, ifoundthetruth.com. Okay, so you can watch not just the stories, but a bunch more. Tom, how many stories are there online? I think we have nine now, getting ready to release another one soon with Hormo Shariot. And these are powerful stories of how Jesus invaded their lives and how they gave their life to him. Hmm. Joanne, what kind of risk is there to someone like Nadine who chooses to share her faith so publicly? That's a good question, because even though she now lives in America, she still has family back in the Middle East. So for her to go back home to her home country, sometimes that can result not just in persecution, but in death. So they do count the cost, and they know that very clearly before they give their lives to Jesus. I think some uh, people listening would say, how do you encounter people like this? I mean, and and how do you convince them that they ought to share their story? I mean, given those uh, uncomfortable, uh, you know, factors. Tom, what's what's the answer? Well, you know what? God put on our heart Muslims, and we were not drawn to them, but he broke our hearts for them. So we, our radar just goes up wherever we are when we see covered women or we're by a mosque. And we say this in our ministry, John, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are here. Mm. And what are we going to do about it? So as believers, this is one-fifth of the planet. They've come to America. This is our chance to reach them. Tom and Joanne Doyle serve with Uncharted Ministries. They specialize in telling personal stories of the persecuted believers that they serve in the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and beyond. I couldn't let this opportunity slip by with saying, what's the latest story that weighs on your heart, that's tugged at you, that you guys would share with us right now? Wow. Well, Joanne, if you don't mind me taking this one, I think of a young woman in Gaza. Her name is Dina, and Dina has been reading the Bible. She's a covered Sunni Muslim. Eleven terrorist groups rule Gaza, so it's very dangerous for Muslims to come to faith in Christ. She just recently gave her life to Jesus in the last couple of weeks. Mm. John, in the midst of it, she's running a children's camp right when Hamas is doing their indoctrination propaganda camps, telling kids in Gaza they need to be suicide bombers. She's running one for children that are grade school, telling them about her love for Jesus and having them memorize Bible verses. This is extremely dangerous. So for believers out there that think, well, I'm not sure if I could do anything, just think about Dean in the Gaza Strip. She's been a believer for two weeks, and she's sharing her faith in the midst of this hostile, danger environment. Wow. So how do you hear about Dina's story? How did you encounter her? Well, you know what? We have about 70 workers in the Middle East, and so we're finding out about things really on a daily basis. But we got to know her sister uh, years ago when we gave her a computer as a guest. That Mm. was her dream in life. And we had the privilege of writing about her in Women Who Risk, our latest book, Secret Agents for Jesus in the Muslim World. Tom and Joanne Doyle serve with Uncharted Ministries. Joanne, how can we be praying for your ministry? 
thank you for asking that question. Um, you know, we live in interesting times right now post-COVID. And so we have, Tom and I have been traveling through the Middle East and Central Asia for years. And so lately, though, since COVID, we haven't been able to do that. And so now countries are just opening up but then now some of them are reclosing. So one of the greatest prayers is that God would open that door so that we can begin going back into the Middle East and that we can begin engaging Muslims more here, right here in our own backyard in the United States. Just again, everything's been closed, and we are just so itching, ready to get back out there to share the love of Christ in the dark places. Well, I think listeners are probably still impacted by Nadine's story that we played a moment ago. And, and you mentioned there are about eight more online, Tom. What is a strategic way that listeners can use this online video tool? Great question, Sean. I think they can meet Muslims in their areas and they just say, wow, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Iran. You know what? I just saw a video online. I wonder what you would think of it. Can I send you a link to a video? It's pretty cool. And they have no trouble dialoguing about their faith, Muslims. But once they hear a story about someone from their own background, it touches their heart, and they want to talk about it. So use them as an evangelistic tool. Mm -hmm. The videos, you can just pass them on. Tom, in 30 seconds, what's on the horizon for Uncharted Ministries? What's the new chapter, the new thing you sense God is doing? Oh, wow. I think um, you're going to get a chance to talk to Joanne about this, but Flourish, the television program that is beaming into Iran, which is the fastest growing church per capita in the world. And they've asked Joanne to do a program, Flourish, with Joanne and Friends, broadcasting to women who don't know Christ, of the ones that do, and the ones that are wanting to go on and be trained for ministry. So Flourish in Iran, 10 times a week, seen on one of the biggest satellite channels. That's pretty huge. I would say that's huge indeed. And we encourage you to check out ifoundthetruth.com for yourself. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure to connect with Tom and Joanne Doyle. Don't go away. Charlie's back with a fresh stack of Bible questions next on The Land and the Book. There's no getting around it. If you pick up a copy of the Bible and open that Bible and really process what you're reading in that Bible, well... You're going to have some questions, and that's why this next segment is such a treat. We finally get answers to some of those things that really kind of puzzle us. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Always good to connect with you, Charlie, and this segment is kind of fun. Oh, it is, John. I love people's questions because it lets you know where their heart is. And some of these questions are rather uh, current, like this one from Zuma. He says, is there anything in the New Testament against using guns for self-defense? I love peace, but I believe in defending my children at all costs. I read about brethren within the persecuted church that would not lift a finger to defend themselves or yield a gun or even a stick because they believe that Jesus called us to be meek and show love. Are we wrong in America to own guns or have conceal and carry permits to defend ourselves and our loved ones? Is there a commandment in the New Testament that would speak to this? How can we preserve a just and fair country without being able to defend ourselves? And if we participate in defending our country, are we doing something sinful? Yeah, those are a series of difficult questions there, but they are important. And it's an issue where I think good and godly people do disagree. So even as I answer, I've got to start by saying I have friends who are going to disagree with me. Uh, So we need to go to God's word with a humble heart to find an answer. But uh, since you actually provided several scenarios, let me break them down and just uh, try and deal with each one. Now, first, is it right for a follower of Jesus to serve in the military or on a police force where 
He or she might be required to use deadly force to take another person's life. Well, I believe the Bible teaches it is not wrong for an individual to serve in that way. Throughout the Old Testament, God commanded Israel to fight his battles. In 1 Samuel 15, God rejected King Saul for failing to carry out God's commands in that regard. I see something very similar in the New Testament. When talking about human rulers, Paul said, uh, he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The one who bears the sword was God's servant, he says, to keep peace and to promote order. And I believe that includes both those who make the laws as well as those who are tasked with upholding the laws. Now, second, is it right for a follower of Jesus to take a life in order to spare the life of someone else? Or to put it another way, is it okay for a mall or a bank or even a church to have trained and armed individuals present who can step in to protect others should an armed gunman enter and try and take innocent lives? Well, I don't know of a direct command either way in the Bible, but I do believe there's a principle that says we should act to protect the lives of others. Uh, In Psalm 82, uh, it calls on believers to rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Uh, Proverbs 24, 11 calls on us to rescue those being led away to death. Again, these verses don't speak directly to the issue, but they do provide us with a principle that says we're to do what we can to protect others. And I believe this would also include intervening to protect the lives of our own family members. Finally, are we allowed to use deadly force to protect our own lives? This is where I find it more difficult to provide a a one-size-fits-all answer. In Matthew 5.39, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In Romans 12, 19, Paul said, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, It's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. In fact, a few verses before that, Paul wrote, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now, Paul ends that section by saying, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, those verses seem to clearly teach that taking a life as an act of vengeance would be wrong. Well, let me wrap it all up. I would find it very difficult personally to justify killing someone simply because he or she tried to break into my house or take my car. Now, at the same time, if someone else was being threatened, a spouse, a family member, for instance, I would do what I felt was necessary to protect them. And I would also be willing to do what might be necessary to protect other innocent lives from being taken. I also need to remember that taking the life of someone brings with it consequences. Mm. Moses took the life of an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. He ended up fleeing into the wilderness for 40 years. People who've taken someone's life can struggle afterward with emotional turmoil, with feelings of guilt. They can also face legal and criminal actions that can devastate them emotionally and financially. And all that to say, it's not an easy question and not something to be taken lightly. Great, Charlie. Thank you for thinking that through very carefully. And biblically, I loved all those scriptures. Brian says, I see numerous references to stars and morning stars in the Bible and Christ being the bright morning star. Job 38, 7 says, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Are these morning stars a reference to angels or is the passage making a contrast between morning stars and angels? Well, in the Bible, the phrase morning star is used several ways. You know, Second Peter 1 does use it prophetically to refer to the return of Jesus. He said, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. You do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In Revelation 22, Jesus actually referred to himself as a morning star. He said, I'm the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. 
Uh, Jesus is the morning star, I think, in the sense that his promised return is the sign that signals the dawning of God's eternal kingdom of peace and blessing. But the Job 38 passage is interesting. In that passage, God's speaking to Job, and he asks Job where he was when God created the world. That's what he says in verse 4. And then in describing creation, God says it was a time when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Now, those two phrases are synonymous. Uh, The morning stars and all the angels are describing the same thing. Poetically, God is picturing the angels rejoicing as they watched God create the physical universe. So it's the context that helps us determine what's in view in each passage. And in Job 38, I think the morning stars there in context are angels. Questions and answers. That's our focus on this segment of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I get to read the questions. I don't answer them, though. Charlie Dyer does. And uh, yours is welcome anytime, by the way, with a quick email to the Land and the book at moody.edu. Esther says, thank you for your devoted work sharing the good news. Question, who decided how many books would be in the Bible? Where did all this information get compiled? Thank you. Yeah, well, I believe God made it clear at the very time each book was written that it was uh, to be included as Scripture and collected. Uh, what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that everything we have is inspired by God, and it's everything we need for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness to make us complete. Uh, the books that ended up in the Bible were the ones that were God-breathed, uh, which is the literal meaning of the word Paul uses there for inspired. From the very beginning, I think it appears that people recognize those writings that carried the stamp of divine inspiration. By the time of Jesus, the Old Testament canon of Scripture was completed and accepted. In fact, in Luke 24, uh, we find the Old Testament divided, Jesus says, into the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms. Well, that's the historical books, the prophetic books, and the poetical books. And even in the New Testament times, works were being recognized as having the stamp of divine inspiration as they were being written. That's why in in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter called Paul's writings Scripture. Peter recognized God's divine authority in what Paul was writing. Uh, From the very first words of God, you know, the Ten Commandments, which God had Moses place inside the Ark of the Covenant, to the letters of Paul, which Paul commanded to be circulated among the churches, that's what he says in Colossians 4, to the fact that church leaders recognized and identified writings as Scripture, like Peter did with Paul's writings, I believe we have clear evidence that these words were recognized immediately by both Israel and the early church as being the very Word of God. Now, with the writing of the book of Revelation, I believe God completed His written revelation for this age. He also made sure, as Jesus said, that not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law till all is accomplished. Well, that assures me that nothing's missing that God intended for us to have. Bob says, I'm fascinated by Jeremiah chapter 31, particularly verses 31 through 40. Could you describe the limits of the land described in verse 40 and whether Israel has ever had that much territory? Yeah, and actually that particular passage is focused on Jerusalem. Uh, It gives several geographical descriptions. It starts with the Tower of Hananel, and that was at the northeastern corner of the city. Uh, It's also mentioned, by the way, in Nehemiah chapter 3 and chapter 12. Uh, the corner gate was probably located on the northwest corner of the city. Uh, it seems to be mentioned in 2 Kings 14, 2 Chronicles 26. These two references point to the northern boundary of Jerusalem being restored. Uh, the locations in Jeremiah of the hill of Gareb and Goa aren't known, but since verse 38 describes the northern boundary and then verse 40 describes the southern and eastern boundaries, uh, we can assume that they must mark the western boundary of the city. Uh, Jeremiah then identifies the southwest and southern boundary, he says, as the valley in which the dead bodies and ashes are thrown. 
Well, he'd actually identified that as the Hinnom Valley earlier uh, in chapter 7. That was the ancient garbage dump of Jerusalem. And finally, he gives the eastern boundary as the terraces out to the Kidron Valley, which is on the east side of Jerusalem. So what he's really done is given the actual city boundaries for Jerusalem as it existed just before the Babylonian captivity. And he's saying someday in the future, the entire city would be rebuilt. Now, God provides two additional characteristics of this rebuilt city in that passage. He says it'll be holy to the Lord in the sense that the city and its inhabitants will be set apart to God in a special way. And then second, he says the city will never again be uprooted or demolished. Following this ultimate restoration, the city would never again be destroyed. So the verses were not fulfilled following the Babylonian captivity. The post-exilic period lets us know the city certainly wasn't holy, and the city was again destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. So the promise that Jeremiah gives there in Jeremiah 31 is still waiting to be fulfilled during the millennial kingdom. All right, Charlie, thanks so much for that rapid-fire response to so many great questions. Listen, you're enjoying the land and the book. You're catching the broadcast. Why not share us with your friends? The podcast is an option that you can share with them. It's at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Coming up, Charlie's devotional right here. And welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our teacher, Dr. Charlie Dyer, about to open his Bible, take us to the book of Revelation for a look at the letter to the church at Sardis. If someone were to visit your church, how would they describe it? Full of life? Full of growing Christians? Or would they describe it as a dead church? Well, I guess not a dead church, but more on that in Charlie's devotional. But first, here's somebody who's been to the Holy Land. My name is Julius Wonglai Singh. An unforgettable experience in Israel for me was the visit to Tel Dan. The geography the location, but mostly the social activity of what happens in a gate. I had read about it in the scriptures, and I've thought about them, but when two members on our trip asked for a reenactment of their marriage vows, we asked the group leader where that could take place, and the gate there was the most natural place. There were other people touring, and there were many people going back and forth, And what I remember in the reenactment of Paul and Pam's wedding vows was the publicness of the event. All eyes are looking at this uh, this couple and people are stopping. And I guess I never stopped and thought about the significance of a public event that happens in the gate. Reenactment of that event there was very memorable and stayed with me for a long time. For the last several weeks here on The Land and the Book, Charlie's been walking us through the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Today, what church are we going to, Charlie, and what's the report card summary? Uh, Today we head to the church at Sardis, and the report is not good. All right, let you have at it. Okay, well, we're taking our journey from uh, Thyatira to Sardis, the fifth of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And as our bus winds its way into a deserted parking lot, It's hard to imagine this was once one of the most regal of cities. A short walk brings us to the ruins of the Temple of Artemis, its few remaining columns giving us but the faintest glimpse of the magnificence that was once here. Two words seem to capture the essence of ancient Sardis, wealth and security. 
Uh, the cry, there's gold in them thar hills, might have first rung out in Sardis when gold was discovered in the Pactolus River, which flowed through the city. We've all heard the fable about King Midas, the king whose touch turned everything to gold. But you might not know that according to the fable, Midas finally got rid of that blessed curse by washing in this very river. In a sense, the legend arose to help explain how all that gold ended up in this stream. The Midas touch might be a myth, but King Croesus was not. He was the king of Sardis whose wealth gave rise to the expression, as rich as Croesus. Croesus extended his kingdom through conquest, until eventually he felt confident enough to face the growing might of the Persians. He consulted the Oracle of Delphi, asking if he should attack. The answer seemed favorable. If you attack, you will destroy a mighty kingdom. Unfortunately, he didn't realize the kingdom about to be destroyed was his own. Croesus retreated to Sardis, followed by Cyrus's army. But even then, Croesus wasn't worried. The citadel of Sardis was virtually unassailable. He and his army could hold out until reinforcements arrived. But Croesus was a little too trusting of the city's natural defenses. He didn't bother to post guards on the side of the city where the wall stood atop a sheer cliff face. Some of Cyrus's soldiers seized on the opportunity and scaled the cliff at night. They entered the citadel and opened the gates to the rest of the forces. The city that couldn't fall did. Six centuries later, the story was still part of the city's collective memory. By then, Sardis had become a large, prosperous city. Some estimate its population to have exceeded 120,000. The religious makeup of the city was quite mixed. The majority of the people still followed the ancient gods of Greece and Rome, but a sizable Jewish community also flourished there, and by the end of the first century, the message of Jesus had made its way inland to this city. We know little historically about how the church began, but evidently the church had something of a reputation among the other churches in Asia Minor. Certainly that's suggested by Jesus' opening words in his letter to this church. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. Others looked at the church in Sardis and viewed it, perhaps, with just a touch of envy. Maybe it was the relative wealth of its members, which might have paralleled the wealth of the city itself, or maybe it was the lack of persecution in this religiously pluralistic city. Whatever the reason, the church was viewed from outside with a high degree of approval. Its name, that is, its reputation, was that of a church that was alive and flourishing. But like a spiritual x-ray, Jesus peered beneath the surface to examine the hearts of those in Sardis who claimed to be his followers, and the results were not encouraging. Their reputation, among others, was that they were alive and thriving. But Jesus reached a different diagnosis. You are dead. They spoke all the right words, attended all the right services, and knew all the right answers, but they didn't have eternal life. They knew about Jesus, but they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And sadly, this characterized virtually everyone in this city who claimed to be a Christian. Jesus used a series of metaphors to describe the church's true spiritual condition. They were spiritually asleep and needed to wake up. They had allowed themselves to become spiritually atrophied and needed to strengthen the little spiritual life that remained. 
Like the builder who started well but failed to complete the job, their spiritual zeal had tapered off. Spiritual amnesia caused them to forget the truth that had been shared with them years before. They were pretending to be Christians, but they were living lives soiled by sin. Jesus' letter is direct and to the point. There's no commendation because he saw nothing in their spiritual hypocrisy worth commending. Instead, he issued a warning straight from Sardis's sordid past. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Just like the Persian soldiers who crept up the cliff face and over the unguarded walls, Jesus threatened to conduct his own one-man invasion of a church in spiritual peril that somehow thought it was still secure. Jesus' words haunt us as we climb on board the bus for our drive to the next city. Is it really possible for people to grow up in a church, spend their lives attending services, and yet never have a personal relationship with Jesus? His letter to the church at Sardis tells us that the answer, unfortunately, is yes. So what does this mean to you? Ultimately, that's a question that only you can answer. Jesus made it clear that going to church doesn't guarantee you're going to heaven. Only those whose sin has been forgiven and whose names are written in the book of life are going to hear Jesus say to the Father, let them into heaven, they belong to me. Do you know for certain you're going to heaven? If you're not sure, listen very carefully. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. We've all violated God's laws and fallen short of his standards. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the news gets even worse. We can't do enough good things in this life to even begin to make up for our faults and flaws. God doesn't grade on a curve. His standard for getting into heaven is perfection. And that's why he sent his eternal son, Jesus, here to earth. Jesus lived that perfect life and then died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis is a reminder to us that simply going to church won't get you to heaven. Eternal life comes through a relationship, not a religion. If you want more information on how to enter into that kind of relationship with Jesus, why not pick up the phone right now and dial 1-888-NEED-HIM. Talk with someone who can help you make sure you have that relationship. Thanks, Charlie. And that phone number one more time, toll-free, is 888-NEED-HIM. A friendly volunteer picks up the other end and lets you ask all the questions you'd like. 888-NEED-HIM. I want to thank our team today. Of course, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, Dan Anderson, our coordinating producer, and I'm John Geiger. Thanks for telling a friend about The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.